certainly looks like you're starting to practice medicine where you're Monday morning quarterbacking the care of another doctor and what if the outcome is not so hot? That's criminal activity. You don't go back and change a record. If you want to do that, you might as well get insurance against being hit by a meteor. Hello, Rick Mikata, Greg Henry, and our guest, special guest, Dr. Bill Sullivan. Bill uh, is a colleague of ours of sorts in terms of we're all writing papers in the EP Monthly. This is like a big ad for EP Monthly. Do you think we should charge him? Well, I don't know, Rick, but the uh, we all ought to go on strike together for more wages. But what can I tell you? This probably isn't the time or place for that. Bill, welcome uh, aboard. Uh, can you give us a little bit about your background? We do know that you're a, a, a DOJD, and it's kind of always interesting how people get to do both of those things. Well, let's see. I started, oh, I went to medical school. I was going to be an orthopedist, and then uh, all of a sudden I had my first shift in the emergency department in a busy inner city hospital, and I fell in love with it, and I've been doing it ever since. I went to law school out of my residency, so uh, right after uh, I graduated, I started doing shifts in the ER during the day, and then I would do law school at night, and so I went to law school for three years, night school, and I was actually able to take some online courses too, so I graduated six months early, and then I started practicing law part-time, and medicine part-time. So I first year and a half out, I practiced in a, uh, a law firm in the loop and they did a lot of uh, personal injury and they did some med mal, but mostly personal injury stuff. So I worked with them and then I kind of got sick of the, the uh, loop atmosphere. So I started a practice on my own. I've been practicing on my own ever since. Oh, really? Uh, is, the, uh, is your practice limited to uh, malpractice related issues? I do, um, I do a lot of stuff. I represent doctors in front of the medical boards. I don't actually do malpractice litigation because it's so time intensive and you'll get, uh, like you'll get an emergency motion that just happens to come up when you're doing an ER shift and they uh, scramble to get coverage and if you can't get coverage, mm-hmm. um, it presents a problem. So mm-hmm. I, don't, uh, I don't do litigation, but what I do is uh, sometimes uh, clients will hire me just to kind of look over the shoulder of the attorneys that are actually doing the litigation just to make sure that they're not missing anything and do kind of offer help if they need it. So I do that. Most of my legal work is contract reviews. So I've probably done, I've done well over 700, uh, or reviewed well over 700 medical contracts in my career. Wow. What else? What else do I do? Well, I noticed that you're on the faculty of a couple of residencies out there. Yeah, um, I work um, part-time in the uh, emergency department, University of Illinois in Chicago, and uh, I'll do lectures with their uh, residency program every once in a while. Midwestern is where I trained, and so I still stay on staff there, and I do lectures for them probably four or five times a year. And I I lecture up at Northwestern as well. I do the contracts lecture with them, and uh, where else do I go? We do, like, I've got a lecture coming up for the the, uh, board review course. So we try well, to keep active. We, we won't mention what course that is. No, <laughs> we wouldn't do that. No, no, no. no, no. Well, nobody's, no. Ever, nobody's ever asked me to do any lectures anywhere else. So, uh, Oh, that, that may have something to do with your it. Your participants yeah. are losing out, not mine. Rick, let's summarize this by saying that Dr. Sullivan is perfectly well qualified to sit with a couple of nitwits like you and I and carry on this discussion. Bill, we're happy to have you here. Thanks for um, me. Should we start out? Should we start out with uh, some emails, Rick? Yeah, uh, let's do that. And Bill, uh, feel free to chime in here. All right. Well, we've got a great one 
from uh, Jim Lorenzano. He's been binge reading Risk Management Monthly and then taking the CME credits uh, tests at the end of each one of these. And he's now been able to come up with like 50 hours of credit. Oh, my God. Do we recommend this as a way to study, Rick? Well, uh, he says that he has to get uh, credits in which there is a self-assessment, and he called up ABEM or something like that, and they said, well, that means that you got to have a, a quiz at the end of whatever you're doing. Because, you know, when we go to live courses, we don't have any quiz at the end. You know, you get the course is over, and, you, and that's it. Goodbye. Goodbye. Uh, right. Exactly. More or less now. Yeah. Now, so, he's, he's done something he's else here, about, though, yeah, Rick. He's pitching here. Yeah, he's pitching. He says... The passing grade for these risk management monthly tests should be lower for doctors over 50. Uh, good, lu- good luck with that one, Jim. I, I don't know how we'd make that case to the CME people. And uh, by God, listen more carefully when, when you're listening to the tapes. Yeah, that, that's, uh, I think that's the truth. Uh, Jim's a frequent writer. And um, Jim, I'm sorry, you're on your own here. Yeah. Uh, let's get into the next one, Greg, because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, this is an interesting topic. And uh, we've got someone who, again, wants to remain anonymous. They are afraid of possible reprisals. That means you've probably actually got a real issue here. He's doing for various malpractice insurance companies utilization review work. Now, His concern is based on an article in the Medical Board of California Spring 2016 newsletter. It's entitled, Reminder, Utilization Review is the Practice of Medicine. And there were some key points here. A number one, what he's really asking is this. If you participate in utilization review, which we've all had to, and that's the practice of medicine, can we be successfully sued for it? And really, does our insurance cover it? Now, I've done hundred, well, 2,400 cases. I've never seen an emergency doctor sued for their utilization review work. This has got to be pretty rare. But I'm, I'm willing to hear from the, the listenership. Bill, Ricky, what do you think? Can you get sued for participating in utilization review? I've just never seen it. Well, you know, what he's asking is, uh, it's not necessarily malpractice review. It's the utilization review that you and I have done in the past. It says, it says it qualifies if the review is retrospective, prospective, or concurrent. And, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I, I couldn't really figure that out because how can retrospective review which basically says we're not paying the bill, be a source of um, problem. Although I think it can be because this is really about the medical board. And as we're going to talk about later, the medical board is totally different, but you still need lawyers to defend you when you go there. So the fact of the matter is, is will you have a policy that will allow a lawyer to come in at your policy's expense and defend you because you did something related to utilization review? What do you think, Bill? Well, first, first remember, you got to have four things to have a valid lawsuit. Duty, breach, causation, damages. So what, who are we suing and what are we suing for? 
there's already a uh, in Cobra. There's already a part of the statute that says you can sue your insurance company, but the only uh, the only thing you can get back is the value of the services that you were denied. Um, the nice part about that carve out is that you also get attorney's fees if you win. So some some attorneys would would be. Uh, Happy to take a case to say, "Hey, I'm I'm going to get attorney's fees if I can win, you know, uh, the uh, value of a, a CT that wasn't done." I, in terms of can a, a reviewer be sued? That's a little bit tougher because who's their duty to? Well, you know, I think what they're saying is is that the medical board can go after you if it is viewed that you have through this uh, process in some way tainted the care of somebody's. Uh, the care of somebody. He, he, it says here, complaint to the board regarding decisions alleging inconsistencies with clinical principles and processes will follow the same review, investigation, and prosecution pathways as any other claim, complaints relating to the deviations from the standard of care. So this is about medical board being upset with you and you needing a doctor to uh, a, a lawyer to def- help defend your practice to the medical board. And so uh, it seems to me that we have had, well, we all know people who have had problems with the medical board and they all, and they all hired lawyers. Right. right. So, so it's a little different when you, when you talk about getting sued, we're talking about uh, being sued for negligence. I think that that'd be a tough sell. But now if we're all of a sudden saying it's a practice of medicine and the board has the ability to um, review that and go after your license, that's a whole nother can of worms. We had a case here in uh, Washtenaw County when I served on the Utilization Review Committee that uh, we actually went around and told physicians, you know, it's time that grandma got out of the hospital now. I mean, she's been sitting there with her congestive heart failure for a week. Most people have them in for three days. This gal needs to go. Now, the physician who says, quote unquote, he takes better care of his patients. If we forced or gave that woman a letter saying your insurance coverage will no longer be valid or we won't support it, and she leaves the hospital, he was claiming we were uh, giving her lower standard of care and he wanted us taken to the medical board that we were advocating for lesser care for the patients. Have you ever seen one of these actions? I've seen it before. And then what happens is the insurance company comes back and says, we're not really making a determination on care. We're making a, de- a determination on reimbursement. So you can keep her in there as long as you want. It's just she's going to pay the bill, not us. Because right. She's we don't not going to do it. Right. We well, don't see any uh, purpose for her being here any longer. Well, that was the, the claim of the doctor was this kind of letter that we gave to people uh, was frightening them so that they thought they'd lose their savings, this and another thing. Now, none of us actually had to go to the, to the board, the state board, about our licenses. I've, I've never seen that case. If we did do it, and I was an emergency doc at that time, my medical malpractice policy doesn't mention this activity even though it's, quote-unquote, the practice of medicine. And there's no indication under any of those policies my legal fees would have been paid for. And so I I think that that's a genuine concern here when this person writes to us about it. It's, It's 
having to spend money out of your own pocket to defend yourself at these uh, meetings of the Board of Medicine. And by the way, I've been to defend doctors at the in various states at the board. Some states are terrific. They're, they they really do look out for physicians, and others are absolutely draconian. And there was a lot of money spent on those cases. Well, you know, after they talk about concurrent review, you can envision the doctor saying, well, they forced me to get rid of the, the discharge of patient before I was ready. The medical staff was on my hide kind of thing, and I really didn't want to do it, but they made me do it. And you can see that that's a real slippery slope because it certainly looks like you're starting to practice medicine where you're Monday morning quarterbacking the care of another doctor. And the fact of the matter is, is that what if the outcome is not so hot? You could certainly see that doctor saying, well, they made me do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bill, you you review contracts for a living. I'm sure you've seen insurance contracts many times. I can't think of the insurance contract for an emergency physician that has ever mentioned coverage for this kind of activity. Right. It's considered administrative. Uh, I think this, reviewing um, or uh, supervising NPs and PAs, and also, uh, I guess to some degree, even supervising residents, it's not medical care per se. It's more administrative activity. So theoretically, and and expert witnessing is another issue as well. so theoretically, a malpractice insurance policy wouldn't cover you for this stuff. But a lot of this is in theory because I look through the cases um, and I've never seen one where a physician has been uh, denied coverage, at least yet, provide, or, or has even been sued for that matter for um, providing um, supervision over or, or I guess we'll take it back. I've never seen one with, uh, where a physician has been sued about uh, uh, making these uh, determinations for uh, insurance companies. And I've never seen uh, a case where a physician has been denied coverage when they've uh, supervised NPs, PAs, or, uh, or residents. So it, it seems to me that some of it may be theoretical, but who knows what's coming on down the pike. Well, you know, they also talk about overseeing UR processes because in a lot of settings, there's a, a number of nurses or other non-physicians who are doing UR, and there's a doctor in charge of all of those folks. And they're saying, according to the state of California, that uh, the board has authority over medical directors overseeing UR processes. You could also see where um, prospective review, which I think is a lot of prospective review, I think, is going by the wayside, where somebody would call up and say, listen, I want to do a, a PET scan on somebody and uh, and to get prospective review, you'd pr- present your case and the reviewer said, well, to tell you the truth, I don't think we're going to authorize that, that PET scan, which according to California, I think that you may have crossed the line because that may be perceived as practicing medicine, maybe because it's perceived that you limited the care of that patient, and now look what happened. It'd be interesting to see if we ever get one of those cases, how it plays out. I just haven't seen them yet. Yeah, I, I think that's the problem. Until until we've got a, a series of these, we have no idea what decisions are going to be. In the state of Michigan, we did some prophylaxis, particularly for the docs who sat on the EMS regional committees. Basically, it's Good Samaritan kinds of stuff. You'd have to do something so gross and unbelievable 
and nobody has ever been sued because what they knew was they weren't going to get physicians who would accept the responsibility of running these medical alert zones. Always my advice is when you're doing work which involves the hospital, the hospital should have some sort of blanket coverage for your administrative activities. This really does involve both the doc and the hospital. You get appointed to utilization review committees. I would check and make sure that the hospital agrees that this sort of thing, at least for for the degree to which we're involved, will be covered by the hospital's insurance policy. Because the usual rule of thumb is if it's not mentioned in an insurance policy, your malpractice policy, it's not covered. Most hospitals have directors and officers insurance, so you'd, uh, that would be the uh, uh, policy that you'd want to make sure that you're covered under for you doing administrative work like that. Right. Well, this doctor is, I think, referring to the fact that he's working for an insurance company. And the question there is, I'm working for this insurance company. Can I get into trouble in this process? And should I have my own insurance just in case, particularly because the Medical Board of California just put this thing out, reminding everybody that they consider this, at least in some circumstances, going to be the practice of medicine. So the question, Greg, is, and you responded very uh, appropriately to this person. I think it was something like, well, if you want to do that, you might as well get insurance against being hit by a meteor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing is, all of us do function under on a statistical base, our chances of something bad going wrong. And I think if we haven't heard about it yet in all these years, we none of it, nobody on this call has seen the case it's got to be relatively rare and unusual but uh you know if you're working for an insurance company it'd be nice if they had a disclaimer in there or something that said uh for your work you're covered by us should there be any question but you know what it's so rare that i i think this is the smallest of your concerns in the practice of medicine well, yeah, if you're an employee of uh, of the company, I would think that that's the case, the same as if you're working on behalf of the hospital. I guess the other issues, if you're an independent contractor working for an insurance company, that's a, maybe a different matter. Right. I think with a good, uh, like a good faith um, issue too, if, if um, you're doing work for an insurance company, you get sued and they kind of just say, oh, you're on your own, pal. They're not going to really get a lot of other doctors wanting to work for them. So I think that if this this situation ever did arise, it most likely they'd cover the uh, the expenses involved in defending the doctor. I would I would certainly think so. But here's the call to all of you out there listening: if you've seen a case of this or had problems getting legal coverage paid for in any circumstance like this, we'd love to hear about it. But I think it's a pretty rare event at this moment in time. Hey guys, did you get your copy of the months uh, the May's version of ep monthly did you have you gotten that yes yes we have did you I actually found out i'm not on the mailing list believe it or not you're not on the mailing list you're the supervising executive uh editor or something like that i know <laughs> yeah well, i i don't know how they can not send a copy to the grand poobah and and you know i think there's there's orders there that we're supposed to bow down to you every month bill i i can't <laughs> 
I can't believe you don't get a copy because actually your last article, the one you did with Pregerson, was very good. And we ought to reference that one now, Rick. We ought to talk about it. Yeah, before we get into that, I wanted to remind everybody that if you get your copy of EP Monthly, by the time you hear this recording, you should have had it. Then if you turn to the first page over and look on the left, there's this monstrous ad for this thing I've never heard of before called Emergency Medical Abstracts. Emergency Medical Abstracts. And I, I read the ad, and it's very clear that we're all going to have to be subscribing to this thing if we're going to want to keep up with the literature. I don't, th- I, I don't see any way around it. Yeah, Rick, shameless, absolutely shameless. We're not going to go there again. All right, let's, uh, Bill, I want to talk about your case. And uh, for those people who haven't read this series or not looking for this series, what you're doing is presenting the facts of a case and then letting us stew about it for a while to see what we think is going to happen. So can I review the facts of the case this month? Here, quickly, it's a 30-year-old obese woman arrives by ambulance, severe abdominal pain with an onset one hour prior to admission, and she has a history of a recent prior gastric bypass surgery. Now, if that doesn't put the fear of God at you in a second, I don't know what does, because everything is then a, a different ball game. On physical exam, she's vomiting, screaming in pain. Triage nurse says she's afebrile, blood pressure 108 over 54, pulse 115, respiratory rate 24. Routine labs were drawn, and she was given some odansetron and delauded for her discomfort. The pain persists for the next 30 minutes or so. They gave her repeat delauded and IV fluids. She has diffuse abdominal tenderness without rebound or guarding at this time. Labs return in 90 minutes. She's got a bicarb of 17, 18% bands. A CT and IV and oral contrast ordered, performed two hours later, or they were back two hours later. Patient has a high-grade bowel obstruction, possible internal hernia, no free air. She has now been in the emergency department for five hours. Anybody want to comment at this point in time? Rick? Uh, no, I'm going to wait till you get to the end. You're almost there. We, you've almost killed her. All right. We haven't killed her yet. But uh, now at five hours, she's got a uh, 94 over 43 blood pressure and a pulse rate of 123. This doesn't sound good to me. Surgical consult called an NG. Oh, your favorite, Rick. An NG tube was placed. When in doubt, do something. Do something. The surgeon notes a rigid abdomen. Now the blood pressure is 82 over 36. Advises Foley, IV fluids, pre-op antibiotics, pressors, and uh, she is uh, stabilized for emergent surgery. There's no improvement, and they haven't. Uh, she's taken to surgery, but dies before they are able to open the belly. Total time since admission to the emergency department nine hours. Is this re? And Bill, I love the way you put this. You don't say, "Does it meet the standard of care?" You ask, "Is this reasonable?" Would reasonable physicians think this is good care? Go ahead. 
you also have to think about reasonable under the circumstances. So it's what the whole, and we'll get into the whole reasonable care versus standard of care a little bit later. But uh, the whole issue with standard of care, it's very easy for someone to say, well, yeah, that didn't meet the standard of care. But there's there's not a lot of thought to what that really goes into. It's just there's a bad outcome and things weren't perfect. Reasonable is a lot. I, I think it it makes you consider more of all the things that were going on at the time. We don't know how busy it was. We don't know if there's a backup for CT. Um, none of that stuff's really brought out in the, uh, in the uh, scenario. And this was, a, this was a real case as well. So was it reasonable? You know, was it ideal? Absolutely not. I mean, things could have been done better. Ultimately, would they made a difference? Probably not. But was it reasonable? Nine hours from, from the time you get there to the time they get to the OR. I mean, it was five hours before they got the CT done. That's, I mean, you'd like to see things done quicker, but still, I think overall, there's not a lot of delay except in the, uh, uh, them letting the contrast dwell for the CT. I want to ask you guys a question. If someone came in, is in severe pain, has had a had bypass, has a tender abdomen, the surgical consult isn't called here till after the CT scan is done. Is this reasonable? Well, you know, this was a discussion in the EP Monthly between Brady Pregerson, uh, who's known to us and is a colleague of ours out here, and Bill. And there's a you know a column for each of you uh, rendering your uh, view of this case. And my sense is that when I read it, it seems that more or less both of you thought that the things were reasonable. Is is that Am I overstating it, Bill? No, it's, again, they, things weren't perfect. But how often do we render perfect care in the emergency department? So under the circumstances, I think things were reasonable. Now, in retrospect, should the uh, surgeon have been called right away? Maybe. But how many, Greg, let's say you, let's say you see this patient, um, every patient that comes in with abdominal pain who's had uh, a prior, uh, prior abdominal surgery, and I guess we can even, we can even um, uh, take that a step further and say every patient who's had a gastric bypass. And when they hit the door, they've got abdominal pain and vomiting. Um, you call the surgeon. What's the surgeon going to tell you? Uh, well, that's, that's a very good question. If it's in certain hospitals, they'll be down shortly. If it's in other places, they'll say, good, when you've got the CT scan, I'll be back. Get back to me and we'll talk about it. It, it's kind of hard to say. I, I mean, the problem is each individual thing you look at here isn't so bad. But when you say time they hit the door till they arrest in the operating room, it's nine hours. I mean, I, I think there are people who could find that to be, let's say, um, not ideal. Well, you know, we did a, a interview with Bob Durlett oh, maybe nine months ago. And he was bringing up the point of view that delays in the emergency department that can be viewed as negligent in terms of the hospital choosing not to adequately staff for the number of patients that they see on a current recur uh, on a recurring basis. It is always crowded. Patients are always in the hallway. This is not a the hemophiliac bus accident kind of thing, which is an aberration. This is the, the way this oper uh, ER operates. And he took the position, and I really, really was supportive of that, that if you have 
protracted delays as a result of the fact that you've chosen not to adequately staff the department, that you are culpable when there are bad outcomes. And when when I read this case, this doesn't pass the sniff test in terms of, well, what would you think if this was a member of your family? You would think that this is absurd. Nine hours till the beginning of surgery. I think that in this case, to be very candid, the emergency to physician has a duty to drive this case. The emergency physician has a duty to say, listen, yes, I, we are going to get the CAT scan, but you should know that this lady's in extreme distress, and I'd really like to have you come down and see her now while we're getting that. To say that it just you just let the process run, and oh, by the way, there's somebody else in front of you to get a CAT scan. The ER doctor always has the right to say, I'm bumping this one, I'm putting this one in front. And I don't think any of that happened, and I think... One of the uh, concerns that was expressed was, well, there's delays and there are people, you know, there are going to be people in front of you. I think the doctor is the director of the band and that the director should have clearly accelerated this process. And a nine-hour delay is pretty inexcusable. I rest my case. Uh, that's compelling, Rick. I mean, I mean, you, you've said that pretty well. Now, every hospital is different as to what it has, what it can take care of. I see a big a big delay problem is when at smaller hospitals which cannot actually deal with the situation they do too much crap, too much testing, too much this or that before making a decision to transfer. And I think you're going to see more and more of these kinds of cases uh delay in getting things going. If the emergency doc you can't have it both ways. If you're in charge of the department and you you get to call the shots in or out, over to x-ray or back, consultants coming in, you can't pretend that you don't have that kind of responsibility and authority when, when, the, when the shit hits the fan. And that's exactly what happened in this case. This is, this is a long time for the patient to be flapping around in the department. So let break it down a little bit. So the patient comes in by ambulance. They're in severe pain. They get a dose. Uh, they get their vital signs. They get put in a room. They get a dose of medication. 30 minutes later, they're not feeling better. They get another dose of medication. I mean, two doses of medication in, say, 45 minutes or an hour. Is that, is that reasonable? Although that's just masking what the problem is. I mean. All right. So how many times have you had someone come in and say, my pain's 10 out of 10, and they're texting on their phone? Eating, uh, eating, uh, well, yeah, I, that, yes, lots of 10 out of 10s. How often do you get the nurse say, quote, unquote, the patient is screaming in pain? Now, that, that, that does up the ante here a little bit. Wouldn't you agree? I agree. Okay. So, so, um, so we've got an hour, hour into the uh, presentation. They've already gotten assessed and they've gotten their medications. Is that reasonable? Uh, they've drawn blood and given her some pain meds. Uh, s- s- well, so that, one uh, piece, Bill, one piece we don't have here is if when you're the doc, you've seen the patient, you've gone out to the desk, you've ordered a CT scan. If you ordered it within the first hour, what's a reasonable expectation as to when that scan's going to be done? When you have to step in and say, I'm sorry, this patient's going ahead of somebody else. Well, and that's a good point. But then you've got to back up and say, does every patient with severe abdominal pain 
need a CT scan because now we're getting pressure from all the powers of BSA. You know, you ER docs, all you are professional triage nurses and professional um, CT scan orders. Everybody comes in with abdominal pain, you get a CT scan. So at what point do you, it, it, you kind of have to look at the whole gestalt to say, does a patient even need a CT scan to begin with? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I mean, there's nobody more conservative about doing tests than I am by the same token. When you've got someone relatively young who's had a, uh, some sort of bariatric procedure and is now vomiting, who's not improving, who's got a pulse rate going up and a blood pressure going down, I mean, I, I think you're right. That's why we're there is for judgment. On yeah, these. she's got a bicarb of 17 uh, reflecting some metabolic acidosis. If, God forbid, we had ordered a lactate, God, you know, that would have put her to the front of the line for sure. <laughs> but, that la- but the bicarb didn't come back for two hours or more than two hours. It's 90 well, minutes. The, at- yeah, well, that's another issue. I think that uh, that's why I like the, the point of view of Dr. Durlett, that if you can't get your act together to get these not all patients are the same, and I do think that uh, it is the responsibility of the uh, emergency physician. Now, I, I must admit, we know the outcome of this case, and that really can bias us in favor of saying, well, we should have exer- uh, uh, accelerated this process. But be that me- as it may, I think that nine hours from door to surgery is a long, uh, long time. And, and I have a feeling, Bill, that you and I may have a... Uh, a disagreement here because I think that when we come down to it, was this reasonable? No, I don't think it was reasonable. And I would have been pissed off if it happened happened to somebody in my family. But I, I agree that nine hours is a long time. But when you look at the care in the emergency department, what was unreasonable? That That's, I guess, the point. You can say nine hours is a long time, but was it unreasonable to wait a half hour, 45 minutes to get the patient triage, get him in the room and get the pain medicine? Was it unreasonable for the labs to come back 90 minutes later? Was it unreasonable to wait for the labs to do the CT? Was it unreasonable to say, hey, you know what, the CT's taken a couple hours, and then is it unreasonable for the CT scan to take 40 minutes to get an interpretation back? Because when you add all these things together... Now, all of a sudden, you're four or five hours into it. Now, nine hours? Yeah, maybe. That's, uh, that's excessive. But a lot of that was also attributed to the surgeon who said, you know what? I'm not taking the patient to surgery until they're stable. So what part – when you look at the whole picture, you can say, well, yeah, nine hours is unreasonable. But when you break it down and say, okay, what part of not – what, what should have been done differently? What was unreasonable in that patient's care? I don't disagree with you that nine hours on its face seems unreasonable, but what I want to find out from you is what you think, what part of that process should have been different? Well, there were all, all kinds of parts. The, the sum of the whole is uh, the nine hours, but you know they gave uh, PO fluids and this uh, PO contrast in this person. Most of the time that that's generally viewed as unnecessary anymore. So there's, a, there's what, however long that took, that was a waste of time. Exactly. But you know what? The interesting thing in this case is that somebody who's, had, who's got uh, a Peterson's hernia, you're not going to be able to diagnose without, in, without uh, um, PO contrast. So had they not given it, they probably would have missed the diagnosis. Well, I think the diagnosis may, may have been that there's a, a nasty uh, bowel obstruction here. And yes, there's no perforation that is, but, but this lady is, it appears to be, appears to be 
septic in that her blood pressure is going down right in front of you and her bicarb is up. You know, one of the things that I didn't see in the uh, EP Monthly is what was the outcome of this? Is that, or is that in the, do I have to wait for the next issue? <laughs> is that how this goes? No, 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 no. No, she, uh, the, the um, patient died and the family sued. The case went to trial. The, uh, the, the plaintiffs said that there was, that basically they dropped the ball because it took them too long to get all this stuff done. And they didn't think that one of the things that they hit on was that they thought that waiting two hours to get the CT scan was inappropriate. The defense said that, you know, when the patient got there, they had uh, their vital signs weren't that unstable, that the workup was reasonable, and that, you know, the standard of care, or I mean, what they call standard of care was met for somebody who comes in with abdominal pain in a busy um, emergency department. And it was a uh, defense verdict. Yeah, I think that was predictable, to tell you the truth. And, and the, you know, it's, it's consistent with the fact that we, met, we win most of the stuff that we do. Although I do feel that, you know, some, there may have been some art of lawyering here operational. I think there always is. But sure, I would have been, you know, I think that going back to the point that, well, it was a busy department. I would dig into that. I would look to see, was there any backup that the physician could have called to help him if the department was uh, was too busy? What is the, uh, is this typical for the way this department operates, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I would try to have painted a picture for the jury that this department is chronically out of control, chronically taking long times to see patients, et cetera, et cetera. Bill, this, is, this stretches on to, you're making the point in EP Monthly about the distinction between reasonable practice and standard of care and why you think reasonable practice should be the way we're evolving in terms of the assessment of cases. You want to go into that a little bit? I can't take credit for the, uh, the nomenclature. That was Judy Tendelli. She, uh, she's, uh, she is so bright. I mean, she's so, sh- so sharp, but it's just one of the things that she picked up on is this, this whole standard of care thing. It's, and it's not really a standard, and I kind of took the ball and, and ran with it. The, the uh, concepts are the same, standard of care and reasonable practice. It, they mean the same thing. It's just it's very easy for someone to say this didn't comport with the standard of care, and it sounds highfalutin, and you know it, it makes an impact on juries. But I think for a physician to say this was unreasonable, it it makes them think a little bit more. And when you talk about a standard of care, in a lot of cases there is more than one standard. Like if you're going to treat hypertension, you can treat hypertension with ACE inhibitors or um, you know calcium channel blockers or diuretics. So there's no one single standard. There's multiple standards. And then sometimes I'd argue that there's no standard at all. And I mean, you, I can open up a can of worms, especially with Greg and say, look at uh, treating strokes with thrombolytics. I'd say that there's no standard at all, that there's, even though some studies show that there's a benefit, other studies show there aren't. There isn't a benefit. So the, the whole notion that there's a, a quote unquote standard for everything in medicine, I think is misleading. And that's another reason I think that it's uh, going to a, a reasonable care instead of a standard of care, I think makes a lot of sense to help the juries understand it and to help the physicians explain it better. Understand, though, that most states in their statutes define standard of care, that which the reasonable physician of like or similar training would do under like or similar circumstances. Nobody's expecting 
that in the middle of Wyoming, you get the same care as you would have gotten at the Mayo Clinic. And I, I think that uh, I think we always have to temper the individual situation, the individual patient, what's there at that moment in time. And believe me, I see lots of cases where they're expecting a Massachusetts General Hospital response in a 15,000-visit Upper Michigan hospital, rural hospital sort of place. If anybody in the country, any, any juror, is deluded into thinking we do the exact same thing at every hospital in the country, they're just wrong. That isn't what happens. Although, Greg, we've talked in the past about the fact that there is this idea of local standard of care is really kind of going by the wayside. Yes, if you're at a hospital where somebody needs to have a neurosurgeon and there's no neurosurgeon for 50 miles, you've got to transfer the patient. However, if this patient has an abscess, the standard of care for the treatment of abscesses, I think, can be said is that there is a kind of national standard of care for the treatment of abscesses. So uh, I think that to a certain extent, it relates to the, to the capabilities of your medical staff and, and your hospital, but to a certain extent, it doesn't. There, there are uh, things that are locally done, the, the evaluation of this, that, or the other thing, which are not regionally different and don't need to be regionally different. Let me clear up one thing, too. I think I got my issue of EP Monthly out here. I want to make sure that we everybody understands who's the, on the pecking order here. Because you mentioned uh, Judy Tentinelli. Judy is at the top of the page. Right. She, she is the editor-in-chief. You're the senior editor, uh, Bill, and we are the lowly executive editors. But you'll be pleased to know that there are people even below us, Greg. Oh, that's impossible. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of them. Yeah. I think it's arbitrary because... 90% of the people that are below me um, are smarter than me, so I am i don't know how they pick me. I think it's just because I said yes. But uh, I want to I raise two issues just before we move on. One with what, with, especially with Greg's expertise. How many, in all of the cases that you've reviewed, how many times have you seen testimony where a physician expert will say, well, you know what, it wasn't negligent, but it also didn't meet the standard of care? Or it was reasonable, but it didn't meet the standard of care. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that a bunch of times, and it never makes any sense to me. And the way the, the attorneys word the question is everything. Because the judge is going to charge the jury based on what the state statute says. And if you cannot say that they fell below the standard of care, really, then there's no case at all. And 